Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Mignot. This is part of my 29 Days of Magic series, where each day in the month of February, I interview an amazing Black woman from all different walks of life. And today, I am super excited to have Dr. Dara Byrne, who's the Dean of Students at Macaulay Honors College here in New York. She has a phenomenal story, and I can't wait for you all to listen uh, to how she got to be here today. Uh, let's have some fun. Hey, Dara. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I am so delighted to have uh, a chat with you. Although we've been chatting for like two hours before we started recording, so okay. Uh, those are always the best ways to kick things off. So, first question. Always great answers. I'm sure yours will be no different. So, Dara, what was your first job? Yeah, so... Um, my first job was actually a postdoctoral fellowship at the CUNY Graduate Center. It was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, so I did that after I finished my PhD at Howard University, and it brought me to New York to look at um, uh, religiosity and uh, mental health ideas in uh, Caribbean countries and the sort of African retentions and what it said about health-seeking behaviors. I did that for a year, and after that, I moved on to the academy more formally as a faculty member. That was your first job? Yes. For real, for real? <laughs> that was my first job. Wait, so you didn't work all through high school? You, with the Jamaican, Jamaican parentage, didn't have, like, four I jobs when you were not, in high school? I did not. Wow. So, in my family, uh, my my parents were very um, straightforward. You your job is to go to school. You don't do that, then we have a different conversation to have. But the focus was always on school and figuring out what it is that I wanted to do. And I have to be honest, it took me a long time to figure that part out. <laughs> Uh, a really long time. In fact, uh, I think I have this many degrees because I didn't know what I wanted to do that would be uh, joyful um, for, you know, the town that I grew up in, in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, a lot of people complained about the jobs that they had. And so that idea of figuring out what you wanted to do that you wouldn't complain about working for government or going to your job on Monday and so on, that really just always bothered me. And I was looking for that thing that I would be excited about doing forever and ever. And I didn't figure it out in undergrad. So I was like, I'm going to do a master's degree. I'll, surely I'll figure it out by then. And then I didn't figure it out then either. So I went on and did a, a PhD. And um, during my PhD, um, I applied to be a teaching assistant, um, really because it had a great scholarship and I was an international student and I needed the money to contribute to rent and things like that. And um, I was really surprised that when I got into the classroom as a teaching assistant and standing at the front of the room that I had a, a feeling come over me that I hadn't had before. And it was one of those things where I thought, and this is before I even started doing anything. Oh my God, how did I not know that what I want to do 
is right here. I love being in the classroom. And you can be in the classroom from the other side of the room. And um, so in a way, I guess teaching assistant would have been the, the precursor to what became a postdoc. Uh, but I just got really solid on the idea that I belong in the classroom. Uh, that's where I, I just love being with people around ideas, um, debating ideas, sharing ideas, seeing what we build together through our various commitments, sometimes commitments that are similar and other times vastly different, but ultimately um, spending moments in time with people as they are on their own intellectual journey. And I have never left that. Awesome. Wow. That's a pretty incredible testimony. <laughs> Um, and it's also that you just randomly cast me through and you're from Ottawa, Canada. How does you, yeah. how do Jamaicans end up in Ottawa? <laughs> Usually for school or jobs, right? Um, the, the usual immigration stories, um, in the case of my specific family, my parents met in undergrad in, at McGill in Montreal. My grandparents met at McGill in undergrad in Montreal. <laughs> they, met, they met during right before the, the World War One. My parents met during the um, 60s and Black Power days. And in both instances, everybody went back to the Caribbean after finishing school. And eventually, I would say maybe when I was about nine or 10, um, my dad was doing work with the uh, UN development projects and we immigrated to Canada and uh, my grandparents were already living there along with a number of friends that my parents had in uh, when they were in undergrad in the 60s. So that's how we ended up in Ottawa. And so what was that like? Like what's the, I, I don't think I've ever heard about the Caribbean community in Ottawa per se. Yeah, you know, I want to say that I had the best experience. There is something about being a child of the diaspora. Now, the U.S. is my fourth country. I should I should clarify that. Um, you, the U.S. is my fourth country, but Ottawa is di diverse in ways that people wouldn't normally think about. There are... Um, friends that I had in school from all far corners of the globe with many different experiences through immigration or not, in addition to having friends and being around people from First Nations communities in Canada. And so my sense of how people live in the world, the importance of their cultures, what they're trying to do for their families, how they build communities. I, I just always had that sense of um, multiple ways of seeing and being in the world and having great comfort with that and confidence with being um, different and in common and working across your differences and being um, in in great relationships with people who are not exactly the same as you. And I'm so grateful for that kind of experience, um, especially because the the Canadian sense of 
uh, diversity and belonging is very different historically and um, through policies and how people work together in communities and go to school together. It's very different from the U.S. And I'm super grateful for that because it laid the groundwork for what has turned out to be my life's work, which is um, building programs and uh, running a college in a way where the goal is to ensure that every single student who walks through the door feels like they belong. Um, it's not perfect and you're always working at it, but that's the intention. And that comes from um, being in and through these just incredibly diverse environments that I got in Ottawa, Canada. I love this. Oh, it's just so wonderful. Um, so tell me about your experience at, at, at Macaulay Honors College. Like, how did that come to be and what's your sort of day to day like? Yeah. So, um, so I'm the fourth dean of Macaulay and Macaulay is one of the 25 schools that makes up the City University of New York. Now, the title dean is the head of the school. Um, other schools have presidents. Um, I am the dean and my boss is the chancellor of CUNY. Um, I am so humbled every day that I get to call this my job, um, that uh, between the chancellor and the search committee and the chair of my foundation board for Macaulay and others and the Macaulay family, that uh, I was chosen to do this really important work. Macaulay is the only public honors college in New York. And uh, over the last 23 years, we have provided opportunities for primarily public school students in New York City and Long Island and a little bit in the surrounding tri-state area, and of course, some international students, tremendous opportunity to, to graduate from college entirely debt-free. So wow. we fund all four years of the undergraduate experience in addition to fundraising to cover the cost of study abroad, or an internship if a company cannot pay for one, or research experiences. And I'd like to think that that combination of zero tuition, support for incredible experiential opportunities, and the best support staff in the business, that what you get are young people that get to do what I got to do uh, in the 1900s when I was in school, which is just be a student and figure out who you are and what you want to do and how you want to live. So it's not lost on me that this is kind of like a full circle moment for me. I ended up where I am because I had the luxury of focusing entirely on myself my intellectual capacity and my dreams, right? Not a lot of young people get to do that. And uh, what we see at Macaulay is that without being able to provide these things, there's a lot of talent that would otherwise be lost. Our students arrived to us from high school highly motivated, 
incredibly talented. I mean, their GPAs are out of this world. Those who choose to do the SAT out of this world, their community service, their participation in things there. These are the kids that gave everything when they were in public school. And the gift that we have for them is an investment to continue focusing on what you're going to do with all of that brilliance, right? And in most cases, our students stay in New York and serve New York for um, the rest of their lives. And that's a really powerful thing to say that that's what you do with taxpayers' money is invest in the future of New York. So that was a sermon. (laughs) You get a little Uh, of that out of me every once in a while. (laughs) I mean, I just think about, you know, there's this humongous student loan crisis right now. And you think about, you know, there's always this idea of like, what, 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 what does it mean when you get to be fearless? And how does it turn you? What, and what does it turn you into in terms of the person that you become if you don't have to have fear? And it's this beautiful story of how you all are able to like in, in this time where everyone's so freaked out about what those loans could do to you. You're teaching kids how to be fearless and like how to look be open that aperture so wide that the world really can be their oyster if you don't have to fear about worrying about how you have to pay for school. Yeah. And what that you it's know, amazing, it's amazing. Some of our students can't afford a metro card. Right? Uh the choices that they make about their next steps in college comes down sometimes to $200 to $500. We're not talking about uh, a $50,000 problem. This is these are things that are devastating when you look at the barriers that are facing brilliant young minds who uh, happen to come from households where the income level might be below $35,000. We can't afford in a city like New York to let sheer brilliance and sheer determination get dwindled at 18 because of $500. That is a really solvable problem. And I'm incredibly grateful for this opportunity to work with an engaged community of public-private partners to try and resolve that. Um, For example, we had uh, in my first year, so I'm currently in my sophomore year as dean, (laughs) so uh, last uh, May we had a gala and it was the college's highest earning gala. And because of our success with that gala, we were able to increase by $1,000 per student the amount that they get uh, to support um, things like unpaid internships. So if you can't get an internship that will pay you, let's say, $15 an hour for the semester, Macaulay will cover it so that we don't have a student that's going to say no to being in in a research lab or to being in 
a public policy office or even working for city council. Those are the kinds of things that we we know that we can resolve at Macaulay. And I'm so lucky that I get to uh, play a leadership role in this. It's so amazing because I think about all, you know, all the challenges folks have where it's like between working three jobs to make sure you're, you're able to, to help your help your family or going to school and paying those insane loans and all that brilliance who gets left behind because yeah. we don't we, we we don't have structures and safety nets to, to allow that to happen. Exactly. And it's and the thing is, it's giving folks it's 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 always a thing where I. I'm always horrified by the lack of awareness of people arrested in the rest of this country, where it's like you say stuff and you you don't realize that the rest of the, the rest of the country doesn't have it like this. It's like the the same people are like, oh, don't go to college because like that's not what we're looking for. Gladys Silicon Valley lunatics. Um, like we'll just pluck you out of obscurity and like turn you into a VC or fund your company by like ten million dollars, and it's and it's so daft because. Yeah. You're losing out. You're missing out on so many amazing people because you can't understand that the rest of the world, the rest of the country, the rest of the city is different and has different challenges. But if you just took two seconds to, like, look at the rest of the world around you, you would see so much brilliance. And so many of these ridiculous you know, companies that go crash and burn. Well, we had no idea this person would be able to, wouldn't be able to do it. It's like, yeah. If they've never had a job before, they've never managed a budget before, but you just thought because they went to the right school or they knew or their dad knew someone or their mom knew someone and you put them in those positions, it's, you know, that's what we talk about what it means to actually have equity in the world. We're giving everybody those same level of opportunities uh, to learn and to grow and to fail, but we don't have it. Yes, I love that. And to learn how to take calculated risks without um, irreparable kinds of consequences or damage. So college is the time to uh, take that uh, unpaid internship that we help to fund um, or to do study abroad and be miserable or to <laughs> study abroad and discover a, a, a part of the world that you never thought about or discover who you are when you're outside of your uh, culturally familiar context. This is the time to do it. Um, but it's important always to put that in context with the lived reality in New York. Some of my students travel two hours to get to their classes, right? Each day, that is four hours sitting on trains and buses. And for those who are in Staten Island, there's a ferry on top of that. And they might be in an eight o'clock class. So they left their house at 5.30, 6 o'clock to get to class. If it weren't for working someplace, they wouldn't have food. If it weren't for the generosity of financial aid and other these kinds of things, they would just be worried all the time about how they're they're going to make it, how they're covering the cost of books. Now, it's really hard to say that uh, the future looks bright for New York. If that's what we do to students who have been successful every step of the way in their high school journey, middle school, elementary school, they did everything they were told to do and then some and still 
they're going to spend another four years suffering to earn uh, credentials to be able to serve New York, to lead New York, to pay taxes in New York, and so on. And I think that the the model that we are trying, that we've been building for the last 23 years, is just a, such an optimistic one. It's such a beautiful one to say, we're in a partnership with you, and we're going to invest in you, but you have to leverage that investment by taking some calculated risks to push yourself beyond what you might typically do if you had all of these barriers in your way. And what we're seeing is that what they do with it is mind-blowing. I mean, <laughs> when you remove the cost of tuition for a Macaulay student, they're double majoring, triple minoring, they are doing study away, study abroad, uh, one, two internships. They um, do a lot of volunteer work well beyond what they're asked to do. But most of all, when something happens in our community, they write and ask, hey, Dean Byrne, how can I help? What can I do to support my peers? Is there anything that you need from me? Now, I kind of like the way that mm -hmm. that type of world feels when when young people are gifted with the proper kind of support. They pay it forward and back in ways that are just um, really set us up for a great model on how public education can work. It's so, it's so, so, so incredible. And like, I want to know it existed. Big shout out to Kathleen Weinberger for connecting us. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I care deeply about education for kids who didn't have the same opportunities as me. And it is something why I mentor a bunch and I've always been at schools. And because I know that like, but for different circumstances, I could have been one of those kids. Yeah. And so as leaders today, like, I think it's our it's our, you know, um, responsibility to help in any way we can to get, give these brilliant minds as many opportunities as humanly possible, because that's the only way the world gets better. So, exactly. you know, in this current climate, things are a little bit weird around, you know, diversity and equity and, you know, helping to show that, like, having a diverse student body is necessary and that teaching about Martin Luther King and slavery is so important and you know our academic institutions uh, are weirdly under attack like how do you navigate all of that and like how do your students who you know are some of their the kind of great great students who'd be like how do we support you all like well, how are they responding to this yeah, you know, it's um it's an interesting experience to have a generation of young people who have experienced diversity, equity, inclusion in a way that's very different from my own. And sometimes when you're you are interacting with them you have to open yourself up to the reality that things have changed 
so much in the academy from when you were there. So again, I was an undergrad in the 1900s where um, being the only one in the classroom was pretty common or um, having being the only one writing about topics that were connected to race or class or other things like that. Now, my students, I mean, they know a lot of stuff about topics that haven't don't necessarily have anything to do with the communities that they come from. And it is a it's it's an exciting thing to try and figure out how you support that student, because a lot of the the efforts that have been made in the last, you know, what are we at? 60 or so years out of Brown have actually worked. And I know there is a lot that's not working and a lot of emphasis on what doesn't work or what um, is under attack. But when you get into the rooms like I do with the young people that I serve, what you realize is that the ongoing effort of educators in New York City, the tri-state area and elsewhere to bring them a well-rounded curriculum has been happening for decades. And these guys can talk about so many different things and have values that are really balanced. Now, of course, I'm not talking about every single human being that I've ever met, but I am working with young people that are hungry for solutions. They're not really interested in talking about problems all day long and dissecting what is going wrong. They're really asking the question of how can I be part of the solutioning and what does that look like? In fact, many of the opportunities that come our way that our students sign up for or are eager to participate in are about uh, being in the spaces in New York where people are actively working on solutions, even if the solutions are um, perfect or they're a little bit messy and so on. They want to see that. And I find that to be both humbling and refreshing and something that challenges me to ask every day, how can we strengthen our curriculum and programming to put them in places where they're around other people who are not deterred by um, attacks or challenges or defunding, but they're keeping on with the meaningful work. That's where these guys want to be. And uh, I'm excited about what that means to invest in folks that have no intention of giving up on the kind of world that they want to live in. That's awesome to hear because sometimes I'm scared. (laughs) Sure, for sure. The benefit of being around 18-year-olds is that they don't accept that that's the fate of the world because their their shot hasn't come yet. So they they aren't looking at things the same way that we are. They are going to try 
And what I think that has done for me is channel things away from fears to more looking at what are the specific finite barriers that I can move today for that kid. I can't do everything. I don't have all of the access and all of the power and all of the resources, but I do have 2,100 students that face a number of obstacles every single day that challenge their ability to get into spaces where they will learn with people who are hell-bent on seeing a different kind of world. So what do I got to do to make that easier? and more discoverable or just more fun. Um, so that's kind of where I put my focus. And it's been, I gotta tell you, Laura, it's been really exciting, sometimes therapeutic, but really <laughs> exciting because uh, the, the students show up in droves. I mean, they show up and they invest their intellectual capacity in that. You know, that, that does warm my heart. I feel a little less scared, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, because I think it's just, you know, again, you, I think, I feel like there is such a wild misjudgment of what this next generation is going to do. And I think it's coming coming from groups who assume that if they just keep, you know, pressuring and banning and, you know, restricting everything under the creation, that's just going to stop people. And I'm like, I don't think that's possible because the internet exists. Social yeah. media exists. Yeah. Um, we're no longer having three channels of television. Like there, like there isn't a way for you to hide information anymore, but I think it's just a matter of, as you said, opening up those barriers so that folks can fly through them. Because once you, you know, give folks the world they'll figure out how to manage. But if you throw up every single rock and you can in their way, then they're going to trip and they're going to fall. But it's to, they're still going to find their way. It just might take them longer. So in a race to save humanity for the climate, for the environment, for, you know, for justice, wherever it might be, economic or environmental, if we give, if you take away some of those barriers of figuring out those solutions, it makes me hopeful about what they can, what they'll be able to come up with. Absolutely. You know, it's worthwhile to remember that most of the movements in this country have been powered by young people. And I don't expect that that's going to change anytime soon. What we, at least what I'm seeing uh, that I, I'm uh, fascinated by it are really young people, even younger than college, that are very clear about the power that they have. And I'm not sure that in the 1900s, I was like 16, feeling empowered to make a difference and willing to create a social media message or write, start a campaign against a thing that was um, challenging or detrimental to the future of the planet. I can tell you for sure that is not what I was doing with my messy little 16-year-old self. And these young people are doing that. 
and they're finding each other online in communities. They're linking arms and practicing a kind of, and I'm using the word brotherhood because I'm thinking about Martin Luther King specifically in some of his work he talks about using technology and using uh, advances in sciences to move from a sense of a neighborhood to a sense of a brotherhood. And what he meant by that was what it looks like when we work together across our perceived differences to reimagine a world where we are addressing the challenges that we share, right? And that I, my, me being my best self is also dependent on you being your best self, even if we are not from the same neighborhood. Um, I'm wildly par paraphrasing, but he has a lot of work that speaks of this kind of intention around problem solving. And these young people are doing some of that or speaking about some of that. Now, what I like to think of as my job right now is to get them the um, the people and the tools to work on that more because not all of the the um, strategies that are out there are the best strategies for long-term change but I do think that when we create more spaces certainly in the academy and in the way that we mentor young people around their agency and how to leverage their power to um, resolve some of these pernicious challenges, that that is, a, um, that is a great sort of way to partner across generations because the kind of change that I imagine is not the same as theirs. And I'm not necessarily... Um, building alliances by spending time, as we see out there in the world right now, trying to convince them to do it my way or to um, shut them down when it isn't in the form that I want. So what is youth power and service? What is the future of that? And how can my work, how can the academy play a meaningful role in strengthening them to be tomorrow's problem solvers. That, I don't think, is, I don't think that's lost. In fact, I think we need to really get on that kind of work right now. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> so you're out there for teaching the babies um, and making sure they are supported and well-loved. What does Dara do for Dara? Like, what do you do for your self-care? Oh my goodness, what do I not do? So I'm going to tell you a little personal story. Um, remember the, the storm last, in December 22, that big snowstorm that shut down the East Coast? That was, oh yes, okay. <laughs> a so, mess. So I was one of those fools that was out there in the snowstorm. Okay. Uh, yeah with my daughter and discovered that the border that I usually cross at to go to Ottawa was closed. And my GPS rerouted me on a country road where we had been driving out there for like 13, 14 hours. 
saw a lot of cars parked, but nothing really moving. And after a while, when I, I mean, we couldn't see anything, I pulled over, ready to start just crying and giving up, couldn't figure out whether to turn back as the roads were, you know, the, the snow was closing in and so on. And out of the blue, headlights showed up, one car, two cars, three cars, four cars. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a pack here. So I jumped into the pack and lo and behold, all of those cars were heading to Canada and we followed them, made it through. The next day, which was uh, Christmas Day, I saw on the news uh, reports of how many people died in their cars. Uh, and that uh, brought to the surface for me a lot of reflection on what I had not been doing for care, particularly because I was only on that road that late because I was late leaving New York because I had so much work to do, so many things to take care of. And, you know, I'm like, ah, I'm Canadian. I I know snow. I'll be good. Uh, I was not good. And my daughter was not good. And I will never be in that kind of spot again where the imbalance between life takes takes me close to the end. So from there, she and I started playing pickleball every Saturday <laughs> and spending more time having fun. Uh, as I told you earlier, um, I've started going to exercise at 5.30 in the morning so that I start my day telling myself wonderful things as opposed to feeling bad about what I didn't do for myself. Um, so that's what is happening for me right now. And I've been successful at this for one full year. Love and I'm, it. Congratulations. I'm really proud of that because um, I also think that what is important as um, the head of a school, working with over 100 staff members and 2,100 students, it is important that I also show the full picture of what it means to balance everything. Because I would hate for anyone to think that the way that I was working in 22, 21, 2020 is what you should be doing to be successful. If you're successful at work, but feeling like a failure at home and with family, you got to get in there and fix that. So I'm really proud, like really, really proud that I dedicated so much space last year to getting that back in alignment. I love that. And it's, it's, you know, however you have to come to that realization, glad that you were safe and you weren't hurt and that, and, and that drive in the snowstorm. Um, but it helped you unlock a whole other side of the universe. Although pickleball really there. <laughs> no. So pickleball is really, is really great. If you, so my daughter never played a racket sport. I played okay. tennis as a child. And Same. so it is a, it, it evens the playing field for someone who has never played, you have a chance at returning the ball. Um, <laughs> no, you, I, 
tennis <laughs> somebody who's never played, it's miserable, as you know. So the ball is slow, and so you have a the other person has a shot. Now, a year later, my daughter's kicking my tail up and down the court because she's faster than I am. She she is uh, more flexible. She's she's she can get the ball all over the place. But in the beginning, we were able to play together without that sort of difference making it being a barrier. I'm telling you, pickleball is where it's at. I mean, there's this court nearby my house here. I saw some folks playing it yesterday, and I was like, what is this? Fake, this is fake tennis. <laughs> so, it it so. is. There is an aspect of it that is, it's like uh, table tennis and tennis had a baby. Gotcha. A wiffle ball. Yes. Yeah. Listen, for you... With that impactful explanation, I feel like I could potentially see if I could convince some folks to go play pickleball. Again, it's like five minutes from where I live down here. Uh, So I might give it a try. So you've inspired me. So there's that. Um, And, you know, you are just so incredibly inspirational and unbelievable, Dr. Byrne. I have one last question for you. Do you have a give and or an ask of the audience? Oh, so the give and the ask are the same, are the opposite side of the same coin. I have 2,100 highly motivated, humble, talented students that are trying to connect with the working world, the leadership, the space around the tri-state area where where there are people and organizations that are trying to make a difference. I have, and of course me, <laughs> I have that as the greatest gift anyone will ever encounter. But we, I need help understanding more about who is out there and where we can align. I don't actually even need your your help paying for the internship, but I do need to know where there are emerging fields or areas that the academy might not know about yet, but you out there do, that would be really cool for a young person to get familiar with. Many of our students are first in their family to go to college. And when you're really smart, people tell you about four or five particular jobs, doctor, lawyer, engineer, finance, accounting, things like that. You hear about five pathways. But New York has so much more than that. There's so much more vitality And as a non-traditional college leader myself, I don't always have the the access and the connections. And I'm and I'm trying to break through that so that that limitation that I have doesn't become their limitation. So I have the gift of incredible talent. But the ask is for access to spaces and places with incredible vitality in New York that um, 
would be receiving of the incredible gifts that I have. I think I might be able to help you with that. Love <laughs> that. Um, I might know everybody, but I think that's an incredible ask. And I would say it in a much more blunt way. I have lots of friends in advertising at tech companies and the music industry who listen to this podcast. Contact me and I will put you in touch with Dara because those kids need interns. If you want people who actually are smart, who know what the world looks like and can give you a view of the world that you haven't even thought about, talk to Dara. That's what you need to do. There you go. Please. Um, I'm very eager to even do things like looking at um, your cases. If you have a compelling case study, a problem that you're going to start looking at, we'd love to we'd love to be in partnership around that and build curricular experiences or case competitions, other kinds of things like that that give these young people more experience with solutioning. Young people today want solutions, but the only way to be really good at solutioning is to practice developing solutions. And uh, and I need help getting that. Yeah. We'll yeah. help you. I'm just gonna- you. I will make calls um, because, again, I always say this when I'm, when I'm talking to young people, when they ask, like, Laura, what do you do? And I'm like, well, obviously, I'm an executive now, but I was virtually a producer and before that I was a technical project manager. And these are the three most important skills you need to have. Who in here is a problem solver? So whenever you guys get in trouble, your friend gets you, this friend gets you out of trouble. Who in here is a planner? So when you, you guys want to think about doing something, this is the person you all talk to. And who in here is the plug? So this is the person who knows a guy who knows a guy, gets you into the club, gets you into the party, um, gets you in, into the sneaker drop, like that person. If you are any one of those three things or you happen to be a combination of all of those three things, automatically you'd be a great producer because those are actually the most important aspects of doing the job that I do. Oh, amazing. So... There's so there's a plethora of things again in the world of advertising, for example, that you know so many of your amazing students could do. So we could talk forever about this, which I will. But it's so important to lift as we climb and help students, you know, just be, walk through the door. Once you open a door, they will walk through it and fly. Uh, so I'm calling out all my friends in the industry to like, here's where talk talk walk the talk that you all are always saying. If you're in New York, you know how to get a hold of me, which means you know how to get a hold of Dara. Easy peasy. <laughs> Thank um, you so much. I tend to be blunt about these things. Uh, but Dara, you are amazing. It's I mean, we've been talking for like five hours. <laughs> like, it's just so awesome to talk to you. And I I can't tell you how delightful it is to meet someone like you who in the face of so much foolishness is just doing a damn thing. Um, and is, you know, imparting so much wisdom and care and empathy around students who will change the world. So thank you for all that you do. And thank you so much for being on the podcast and being part of of 29 Days of Magic. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and and also the um, partnership around the kind of world that we want to live in and the world that we want to leave behind. Amen. So we'll put all the details in the show notes for you to contact Dara. Again, I'm saying to my friends in the industry, you all are holding companies. You're all in New York. It is not hard. Interns. <laughs> They'll even pay for your interns. So stop it. 
Um, but uh, we'll find lots of folks to connect you with um, because it's so important and impactful the work that you do. And thank you so much for being on the Reset Podcast. And that is our show.